Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big money at Menards. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Joyce and Karen Aparo? Joyce Aparo was born in 1939. She grew up in Hartford, Connecticut. She spent a lot of time alone as a child. She did not have any true friends. Joyce was arrogant and condescending. She became lost in a world of fantasy and would fabricate grandiose and elaborate stories about how successful and great she was. Joyce was quite intelligent and secure in her ability to reason, but she was insecure on the topic of her appearance. At one point, she even had cosmetic surgery on her nose. Joyce went to college. She married a man that she met there. They divorced five years later. After graduating from college, Joyce found a job as a health planner for the state of Connecticut. Sometime later, she met a man named Michael Aparo. He was studying to be a Catholic priest, but after spending time with Joyce, he decided to drop out of the seminary to be with her. He would eventually become a deacon. The couple married on July 30, 1966. On February 12, 1971, the couple had a daughter named Karen. In 1976, the couple divorced under particularly acrimonious circumstances. Karen rarely saw her father. Joyce pressured her daughter into playing the violin starting in 1977. Over the next several years, Joyce would demand perfection with Karen's violin playing and in other areas of her daughter's life. An investigation was launched in June of 1978 by the Division of Child and Youth Services after a neighbor reported that Joyce punched Karen in the face. There were also concerns that Karen was alone in the afternoon because Joyce worked. Joyce falsely claimed to caseworkers that Karen's IQ was 145 and made this argument that she couldn't find a babysitter that would be more intelligent than her daughter. Joyce married for a third time in 1982. This marriage only lasted about a year and a half. After this, Joyce moved to Glastonbury, Connecticut and lived in a condominium. Karen tried to bring an end to her own life in 1983. Staff at the hospital where she was treated noticed that Joyce was angry, out of control, and did not support Karen through her mental health struggles. Over the next several years, Karen continued to suffer under her mother's perfectionistic and demanding nature. Karen started a romantic relationship with a neighbor named Dennis Coleman. He was three years older than her. Karen also started a relationship with her violin teacher, a man named Alex Markov. Now moving to the timeline of the crime. On July 31, 1987, Karen traveled to Rowayton, Connecticut to spend time with Alex Markov and his family at their home. 
This was about an hour and 20 minutes from Glastonbury, Connecticut. The plan was for Karen to travel with them to a concert in Binghamton, New York, where Alex was playing the violin. Karen was not expected to return to Glastonbury, Connecticut for several days. During the early morning hours of August 5, Dennis Coleman used a key to enter Joyce Aparo's condominium. Not long before this, he purchased gloves, a wig, and pantyhose in preparation for his crime. As he approached Joyce sleeping in her bed, she woke up and saw him. He jumped on top of her and strangled her with the pantyhose. In addition, he used a pillow to suffocate her. He loaded Joyce's body into her white 1986 Volkswagen Jetta and drove about 80 miles to Bernardston, Massachusetts. He dumped her body in the woods and abandoned the car about a half mile away, parking it halfway in a stream. He removed the license plates, the insurance card, and the vehicle's registration, and left the key in the ignition. Dennis was given a ride home by a couple of friends. Later, as part of a plea deal, these two friends would be convicted of hindering prosecution. Eventually, their criminal records would be expunged. Later that same day, Joyce's vehicle and her body were discovered. The police searched Joyce's condominium. There was no sign of forced entry, and the neighbors did not see anything out of the ordinary. Karen was interviewed by the police. They felt as though she was not forthcoming. After she was done talking to them, she asked if she could use a phone in the police station. She called Dennis Coleman from that phone. What Karen didn't realize is that there was a police secretary near that phone who could hear Karen's side of the conversation. The secretary wrote down what Karen said. For example, where did you do it? Did you hurt your head? That's okay. You were over at the house the night before we left. Don't worry about it. Did you clean up? Did you make the bed? The police didn't think that it was a cat burglar. Don't worry about it. And think about something else. I'll be there soon to take care of you. The police found Karen's words to be highly suspicious, but Karen had an explanation. She said that Dennis had been feeding the cats at the condominium. After her mother's funeral, Karen showed up at the police station with a lawyer. Karen told them that she found a note from Dennis on her bed. Among other things, the note contained the statement, I will do the deed, I promise you. Karen told the police that Dennis told her that he killed Joyce because he wanted to be with Karen forever. The police interviewed Dennis. He initially lied about the meaning of the note, but finally confessed to the murder. He believed he was saving Karen from her terrible mother. He acted alone in the crime. Dennis was charged with murder. Not long after this, Dennis asked to talk to the police again. Now he was saying that Karen was involved. Karen found out about Joyce's insurance policy and was motivated by the money. Karen was arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit murder and accessory to murder. The state initially planned to try Karen first and then try Dennis, but Dennis decided to take a plea deal. He pleaded guilty in exchange for a recommended sentence between 30 and 42 years. The judge gave him a 34-year prison sentence. Karen was offered a plea deal, 14 years in prison in exchange for a guilty plea. Realistically, she would have been out in seven years. She declined the deal, saying that she was innocent. The case went to trial. Dennis testified against her, saying that the murder was her idea. After nine days of deliberation, the jury found Karen not guilty on the accessory to murder charge and they could not reach a unanimous verdict 
on the conspiracy charge. The jury foreman winked at Karen before the verdict was read, and he was seen outside the courthouse hugging her and stroking her hair. The state attempted to try Karen again on the conspiracy charge, but Karen filed a petition and was successful. The charge was dismissed. Now moving to my analysis. Was Karen Aparo guilty of conspiracy? The state of Connecticut and many other people believe that she was. Let's take a look at the evidence both for and against the idea that Karen was guilty, starting with the inculpatory evidence. There were several phone calls between Karen and Dennis around the time of the murder. Dennis told the police that Karen was the mastermind of the crime. When the police told Karen that her mother had been murdered, Karen shed only one tear. One of Karen's friends testified that Karen called her right after the murder and told her that she knew Dennis did it. Allegedly, Karen further stated that she had spoken with Dennis before the murder and told him she didn't want to be there when it happened. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, Killer Podcasts, and Slow Burn Media Production. Subscribe today, wherever you get your favorite shows. Karen's diary contained several entries suggesting that she and Dennis had a plan, although the plan wasn't specified. Karen admitted to crushing pills and putting them in her mother's sandwich, although she said it wasn't in an attempt to kill her, just to calm her down. Karen admitted that when she first told the police about Dennis Coleman's involvement, she had already known for two weeks that he was the killer. She lied to the police about when she found out. Karen had a financial motive to kill her mother in the form of an insurance policy. Karen had been mistreated by her mother for many years and was desperately trying to get free of her. Dennis left a note on Karen's bed stating, I will do the deed, I promise you. That really does sound like he was planning to do something malicious. A secretary at the police station overheard Karen making a number of unusual statements to Dennis, statements consistent with a conspiracy and difficult to explain otherwise. Now moving to the exculpatory evidence. No physical evidence tied Karen to the crime. No one witnessed her conspiring with Dennis. Dennis Coleman was able to secure a more favorable plea deal due to his testimony against Karen. About a month before the murder, Karen told Dennis that she had sex with Alex Markoff one time. Right before the murder, Dennis read Karen's diary and found out that Karen actually had sex with Alex over 20 times. This probably made Dennis jealous and caused him to feel more insecure. Joyce was a fan of Alex Markoff. She wanted Karen to pursue a relationship with Alex instead of Dennis. This makes it seem like after Dennis read Karen's diary, he decided that killing Joyce might put him in a better position 
to compete against Alex for Karen's affection. Karen's diary did not contain any statements about killing her mother, although it did contain a record of the struggle she had with her mother. The limited emotional response by Karen when finding out about her mother's death could be explained by how Joyce mistreated her for many years. Karen may have had mixed feelings about her mother's death. Dennis did tell the police that Karen was the mastermind, but initially he said that he acted alone. When considering all the evidence, do I think that Karen was guilty? I think that she was guilty in reality, but not beyond a reasonable doubt. Dennis did not seem to be particularly stable. He was obsessed with Karen. On the stand, he said it was beyond obsession. It sounds like his emotions really took over. He was not thinking clearly and could have easily acted alone. This may have been a case where Karen did want her mother dead, but never explicitly said that to Dennis. Maybe she manipulated Dennis in a more insidious way, showing him what her ideal solution would be without ever stating it in so many words. I will now offer my thoughts on a few items that stood out to me in this case. Item number one, one of the factors that helped Karen at her trial was the nature of her mother. Joyce put a lot of pressure on Karen to achieve success playing the violin. Karen did have some talent for playing this instrument, but she was nowhere near as good as Joyce made it seem. Joyce would tell people that Karen was sought after, like she was invited to play in Russia, Scotland, and at the New York Philharmonic. Joyce was demanding in other areas as well. She wanted Karen to be perfect in every way. When Karen would fail to meet her mother's standards, Joyce would physically strike Karen, demean her, and manipulate her. Nothing Karen could do was good enough for her mother. Item number two, Joyce left an impression on her three ex-husbands. Now, typically, ex-husbands don't come together to form a fan club for an ex-wife, but their thoughts on Joyce were much more negative than one would expect. Joyce would frequently attempt to manipulate them and would make up stories about them. Joyce said that her first husband had brought an end to his own life, but this was not true. She would routinely demean her second husband, Michael, by making fun of him for his religious beliefs, and her third marriage lasted only a year and a half, during which her behavior was highly disruptive. Item number three, Joyce's co-workers held the highest opinions of her out of all the people that she knew, which is to say, they despised her the least. They thought that she was impatient and strange. For example, she would never talk directly to them, even referring to herself in the third person, and she would often speak in riddles. She was not direct, almost like she had no idea what she was talking about. Item number four is Joyce's personality. It is believed that Joyce suffered from histrionic and obsessive-compulsive personality disorders. From histrionic, she wanted to be the center of attention, she was shallow, her emotions shifted rapidly, her speech was often impressionistic, she was sexually provocative, and she was theatrical. From obsessive-compulsive, she had perfectionism, she was very stubborn, she was excessively devoted to productivity, she was over-conscientious, scrupulous, and inflexible about areas of morality, and she was preoccupied with rules and order. In addition to the histrionic and obsessive-compulsive traits, Joyce was narcissistic. She frequently lied, was manipulative, arrogant, condescending, envious, grandiose, and had fantasies of power and success. 
Some of those fantasies were maintained vicariously through Karen. Item number five is the nature of the relationship between Dennis and Karen. Regardless of whether Karen was guilty or not guilty, the relationship she formed with Dennis was a contributing factor to his homicidal behavior. Dennis was extremely needy and desperate. He would frequently ask her if she was going to leave him and if she still loved him. He would often profess his undying love. He said there was nothing he wouldn't do for her. Dennis and Karen frequently had sex, which included BDSM activities. Here's how I think this relationship could have formed and led to the murder. This is just a theory, my opinion. Joyce invalidated the feelings of her daughter. She manipulated her, demeaned her, and expected too much from her. Karen never had anybody that she could count on. She felt isolated from her mother and abandoned by her father because Joyce pushed him away. When Karen became old enough to date, this opened up a wide range of people who could support her. When she found Dennis, they connected right away. Dennis paid attention to Karen. This is something she desperately wanted. She also wanted him to be dominant and protect her. Dennis took on this role of being dominant, which extended to their sexual relationship. He believed it was his job to save Karen from her mother, and he thought that he was destined to be with Karen forever. He couldn't live without her. Dennis formed an ideal image of Karen, which was not even tarnished when she had sex with somebody else. He found a way to blame Joyce for Karen's breach of trust. Eventually, either implicitly or explicitly, Karen communicated her desire to have Joyce out of her life. Dennis interpreted this as requiring a homicidal response. The mother-daughter dynamic that Joyce facilitated led to her death. She didn't deserve it, but it was somewhat foreseeable. Joyce demanded perfection and pushed her daughter past the limit. Inadvertently, Joyce taught Karen how to be just like her. She instructed her in the ways of manipulation and callousness. Perhaps Joyce taught her daughter too well. Through Karen's communication of her pain to Dennis, this mostly emotional mistreatment formed into a physical homicidal representation of Joyce's own rage, cruelty, stubbornness, insensitivity, and lack of empathy. Joyce expected her investment in her daughter to pay off, but she never expected a lethal dividend. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com.